Say the words Indianapolis 2005 to any F1 fan and two images will probably come to mind. The shot of 14 cars pulling into the pits at the end of the formation lap and the remaining six lining up on the grid to take part in one of the most farcical events in F1 history. Since we started Bring Back V10s, this infamous weekend has been our most requested episode topic by far. So for the final conventional episode of Series 2, we're going to dissect the weekend in great detail. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to look back at Indy 2005 are two men who were there on the ground that weekend. First up, I'll introduce our very own Mark Hughes, who had the unfortunate task of having to write a race report about this at the time. So Mark, you know the drill with how we start these episodes with the opening question. Is it possible for you to narrow this down to one thing that comes to mind when you think of Indy 2005? Yes, for me it was standing at the top of the stands on my way to the commentary booths, which are above the, those massive rows and rows of, of people. So the place is full of a couple of hundred thousand enthusiastic, cheering fans who'd made their way there for a special day out, some of them from a very long way away. Um, and knowing that in a few minutes all these people were about to be betrayed, that the Michelin cars weren't going to take the start because that wasn't generally known in the, to the fans in the, in the stands at the time. Um, and I was just feeling angry at how Max Mosley, who we'd later learned was sitting in his back garden in England, being informed of events by phone, had no compunction about making all these paying fans, these fans of the sport, the casualties of this power play. And they'd apparently played no part in these calculations about how this problem with the tyres was handled. I think that tells us a lot about how F1 was running itself at the time. But before we go any further and introduce our second and very special guest, can you quickly explain the fundamental reasons Michelin were caught out so badly in 2005 when they'd not had these problems in any of the years prior to this? Yes, two, two critical things had changed in 2005, both tweaks of the regulations. The minimum height from the ground of the front wing end plates had been raised, so that took them out of ground effect, making the downforce being generated by them much more inconsistent. Um, the average vertical load on the left rear tyre through turn 13 was around 800 kilos, but that was just the average, and that turn took about six seconds. And with the higher front wing end plates, this was all later um, found when Michelin did the research after the event yeah, to fully understand what had gone wrong here. And they found that the load swung massively between 400 and 1,200 kilos during those six seconds. So with the previous wings operating in ground effect and with a more powerful diffuser the previous year, the aero load was less sensitive to changes in pressure or turbulence. But now the loads were varying greatly in creating this aerodynamic bouncing which the tyre had to absorb. That was the first thing. The second was that tyre changes were banned for 2005 and you had to get through the race on a single set, which meant harder compounds and less grip. But Michelin, with its radial construction and flexible sidewalls, which are a very different construction to the Bridgestone, compensated for the lower grip of the harder compounds by building in even more sidewall flexibility as this kept the tread more planted. And it was as those sidewalls flexed through the unique demands of that corner, which was like a, unlike any other on the calendar in its combination of lateral and vertical force, now with a much bouncier ride, that caused the steel belt inside to detach itself from the sidewall, causing a tire to collapse. 
I'm delighted to welcome our second guest along at this stage, the current head of Audi Motorsport and back in 2005, Toyota's chief race and test engineer, Dieter Gass. Dieter, welcome along and thank you so much for taking the time to revisit this story with us. Yes, hello and uh, thank you for, for having me. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, to that one. Yeah, yeah, a strange weekend in Formula One and, and we'll get straight into it. Usually we start these episodes off by talking about what else was going on in F1 at the time. But we all know we're here for one thing and one thing only today, and that's to cover as much ground as we can on a bizarre weekend in F1 history. The drama really began in second practice on Friday when Ralph Schumacher had a big crash at the final banked corner for the second year running. Ralph's 2004 crash with Williams injured his back and forced him to miss six races, but the safer barriers at Indy were extended for 2005, and this time he was able to climb from the car unaided. The session carried on as normal, although Ricardo Zonta also spun off at Turn 5 in Toyota's third car, and the other Toyota of Jano Trulli uh, only completed 10 laps in the session, while Zonta did 6. Trulli did say this was because of the accidents, although he and Zonta did go out again before the end of the session, but Zonta said he stopped again because of more tyre concerns, so Dieter, it was already being reported at this point that the incidents for Ralph and Zonta were because of the tyres, but how much did you know about how serious it could be at this stage in FP2? Well, at this point, obviously, we were completely completely in the dark, to, to be honest, because uh, we saw the two tyre problems on, on two of our cars, and I think... In fairness, uh, Ricardo was the first one to spin and then we had Ralph's accident. But uh, when Ricardo spun, obviously, we didn't have any further information in order to, to react on anything. So obviously, we started investigating immediately, trying to understand what, what was going on uh, together with uh, Michelin. And we did um, some, let's say, setup changes uh, to the cars in order to help the problem, increase the tire pressures. Uh, and the campus at, at this stage. Uh, I think normally in other situations with tyre failures like that, you would be inclined to reduce the campus. But uh, in that particular case, it was uh, quite visible from the beginning that the failure started on the outside shoulder. And this is why we increased the, 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 the camber to help the, the tyre because of the banking and the, and the high uh, loads on the on the tyre. We went out again um, and... Uh, experienced not a failure of the tire but we saw damage and this was the moment when when we stopped running in fp2 and uh, what uh, i think you mentioned ricardo said that as well in uh, in an interview obviously the the the, the whole discussion started off and uh, initially uh, we as toyota we were put uh, a bit in the in the corner uh, basically uh, because it seemed that the problems only happened on the on the toyota cars and there were suggestions in the paddock uh, that we were not respecting the, the, the guidelines with, with cameras and pressure and so on, which obviously wasn't true. Yeah, that was a theme I noticed when I was researching uh, this episode, a few teams just trying to pin it on Toyota. But Mark, you were obviously covering the weekend uh, on site at Indy. Lots of drivers complained on the Friday about a lack of grip from the tyres, but were there any murmurings in the rest of the paddock that this was developing into something more serious? No, not initially. I mean, the, the, the lack of grip was quite a normal thing you were hearing in the early stages of weekend that year because 
Uh, this was the first year that uh, of the the tire regulation where you had to get through the race on a single set of tires. So the the compounds were generally much harder than they had been in previous years. So it was quite a typical thing to hear the drivers say on a on a Friday after practice, especially on a dusty track, that there was a general lack of grip. It was no, there was no clue that there was actually a tire problem as such until um, until Ralph's accident. So we, uh, as Dieter said, uh, um, Ricardo had his spin first which it was only later that that was um, attributed to the the tire problem as well so no the first inkling that we got really that the outside world or the you know the, the people at the track got that there might be a Michelin tire problem was when Ralph had that accident Ralph said afterwards that lightning isn't supposed to strike twice and he did go to hospital for checks after complaining of pain in one of his eyes which he believed could be because he'd got some dirt in there. But on Saturday morning, it was announced that Ralph wouldn't take part in the race. He said he felt 80% fit and was happy to drive, but the FIA took the decision out of his hands on safety grounds. Dieter, would you have been happy for Ralph to drive if he was 80% fit, or did the FIA make the right decision here? Well, I think with the full benefit of, of hindsight that we that we have today, uh, FIA uh, I think took the right uh, right decision there. There was no point in, in uh, taking any any risk, and uh, he did uh, state some some problems with his uh, eye view. So I think it was a very wise decision because the the accident was was a heavy one. Even though uh, thanks to the safer barriers, it was not as bad as it potentially could have been. Yeah, and by the time of FP3 on Saturday morning, it becomes clear to the outside world that something more serious is going on. Juan Pablo Montoya's McLaren and David Coulthard's Red Bull were the only Michelin runners to set a lap time in the session. Pretty much every Michelin car does appear on track, but most of them are only doing out and in laps uh, from and back to the pits. Teams were reported to have received advice from Michelin on setup changes that they needed to make to their cars. And it was understood that only the Montoya and DC crews got these done in time to complete any meaningful running. And by meaningful running, I mean four laps for Montoya, who was still quickest, and only seven laps for Coulthard. But Dieter, Yano was one of the drivers who did not appear at all, I don't think, in this session. At Toyota, were you being extra cautious because of what had happened to you specifically on Friday? Uh, part, partly, uh, yes. I mean, obviously, we had uh, a deep view uh, into into the problem, and and were cautious in that uh, that situation. That that's for sure. But um, the whole dis- discussion, which was was going on with with uh, setup recommendations from Michelin uh, and so on, for sure, was something which which quite often, and we're going to see that later in the weekend uh, as well, happened very much uh, last minute, and those suggestions were one of them. So I wouldn't yeah. say that uh, this was the only the only reason. Okay. And Michelin released a statement on Saturday morning which said, despite all the checks that we have done here and in our test facilities at Clermont-Ferrand, we have not been able to understand or reproduce the problem of yesterday. We have explained the situation to our partners and to the FIA, and we have advised on the conditions for tests, qualifying, and for the race tomorrow. These decisions have been taken in the interest of the safety of the drivers. Michelin identified another specification of tyre that it believed would be able to withstand the loads through the banked final corner, and it said it was actively pursuing getting those tyres flown to Indy for later in the weekend. But that would need agreement from the FIA, as teams are supposed to use one of the two nominated tyre types from their suppliers that are already brought to a race weekend. Mark, when you saw this bizarre 
third practice session and then you get the statement from Michelin that basically says, we don't know what's happening. What were you expecting to happen from that point? Oh, it was apparent from that point that there was a threat to the race going ahead because of the, the, the safety of the tyres couldn't be guaranteed. Then obviously there was a, a possibility, but the feeling was still that a solution would be found and the different spec of tyre was the Barcelona tyre. Um, that that had been flown out before there had been much of a, an understanding of what the, the problem was and actually by the time those tyres landed, basically the Barcelona tyre was just a harder compound of the same tyre. It was realised that the problem was within the construction and the harder compound wasn't going to um, change the situation, it wasn't going to help. Um, so yeah, then the, the possibilities moved on to um, other other possible solutions. You know, talk of chicanes and stop go penalties for the Michelin runners, that sort of thing. But at that point, yes, we were still assuming that some sort of solution was going to be made. But it was already very, very clear that this wasn't going to be just a normal, straightforward weekend. Now, back in 2005, we also had a fourth practice session before qualifying. And in this session, all the Michelin runners were much more active. It was a Michelin 1-2-3 with Raikkonen's McLaren leading Button's BAR and Alonso's Renault. And Michael Schumacher was fourth quickest on Bridgestone's in his Ferrari, half a second back. So, Dieter, after this FP4 session, were you happier with the measures that the teams and Michelin had put in place? Or was was this maybe a bit of a false reading that things would perhaps be okay? Uh, well, I would say at the end of the day is what it was a bit more like like a false uh, reading at this stage because uh, yes, we did some some running in the session. Yes, we made some uh, modifications again with higher pressures and, and cumbers, uh, which uh, were two of them. Um, we we tried to reduce the load on the car uh, by taking off, off downforce. I, I remember we were trimming off the flaps to reduce the downforce and uh, then we struggled to get a balanced uh, weight distribution forwards, uh, low fuel levels. So everything uh, in order to uh, reduce the load uh, on on the tyre. So we were happy to, to do short runs like, like a qualifying run, but uh, at this stage we still didn't feel happy to, do, to have a, a tyre which could effectively do the race. And it was after this session that we get a bombshell from Renault team boss Flavio Briatore, who puts out a statement saying that if Michelin was not given authorization to use the new tyres being flown in, Renault would not compete in the race. The statement added, we fully support Michelin in this situation and in the efforts they are making to best resolve it. The safety of our drivers remains our number one priority. So this was the first public suggestion that we might not get a race or we might get cars pulling out. Dieter, did you know ahead of time that Renault were going to make that statement? I wasn't aware of, of that, uh, to be honest. Uh, I mean, we had plenty of discussions uh, back at Michelin's uh, office with, with uh, team principals and, uh, and chief engineers uh, about trying to find a way how to potentially race. But uh, this particular one, uh, I need to admit, I don't remember having seen that before. And Mark... You obviously said that there was already an inkling from FP3 that the weekend might be in trouble. When you saw this statement from Flavio, did you think this was a legitimate threat or just Flavio trying to, to make a bit of noise? 
no, there was it was underlying. There was a, a real there was a real threat. It was it, it was both a technical problem, um, but it was being played out in a within a political backdrop. Um, so you you had to sort of gauge one against the other. But no, there was a very very real threat that this it was very already very apparent that there was this 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 was putting the whole race under threat that was already apparent by saturday another meeting took place between the teams and michelin before qualifying and at this stage michelin said it still hadn't found, had revealed any useful findings from its investigations but it was agreed that all teams would take part in qualifying while those were ongoing there were mixed feelings among the Michelin teams at this point. BAR, for example, had had no problems despite a lot of mileage on Friday, but their team boss Nick Fryer said ultimately they would follow Michelin's advice. Red Bull's Christian Horner said he was prepared to take a calculated risk based on the information available, but that a final decision would only be taken once there were more facts about what was going on. So, Dieter, we know the cars are going to run in qualifying, but as, as the team that was most affected in practice... What was Toyota's position at this stage? Well, the, the position at this stage, um, I remember uh, John Howard as a, as a team principal who was saying quite quite early on, uh, basically, guys, uh, I think there's not going to be a race. Uh, that, that was the Toyota position at the time. Obviously, um, we always participated in the discussions and trying to find a solution how to effectively do it. But I, I clearly understood from John that uh, his opinion was that uh, the race wouldn't happen. And before qualifying, Michelin's F1 program director, Nick Shorrock, said, if we have no further information on the product that we've got and why we had the failure yesterday, we will propose to the teams not to go out and race. The final decision is with the teams, but for as long as we can't put our finger on why we had the problem we had yesterday, it would not be responsible of us to allow our drivers to go out and race. So qualifying does happen, and Trulli takes Toyota's first F1 pole position ahead of Raikkonen, Button, Fisichella, Schumacher and Alonso. That's your top six. And these were the days of drivers qualifying on their race start fuel loads, and there was plenty of speculation that Trulli might not have been carrying much fuel. So Dieter, I have to ask this because we need to know once and for all, how much fuel was in Trulli's car for this qualifying session? Oh, for sure, I don't. I don't remember the the, the exact number, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it's 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 a nice discussion that people are are having, and uh, uh, for sure, I, I mentioned it. Uh, I mentioned it before. We did we did everything to reduce uh, reduce the load uh, on the tires uh, and such as well uh, uh, the fuel load. And did the fact that Toyota weren't expecting a race influence the chosen fuel load at all? Uh, potentially, yes, that uh, may have contributed. Yeah. yeah. The drivers had plenty to say after qualifying, and there was a real mix of views at this point. Trulli said some decisions need to be taken, and that it is difficult to talk about the race because we don't feel 100% confident with our car. We'll come back to Raikkonen in more detail later, but he said he was not worried about the tyres, while championship leader Alonso said everyone was worried, but he hoped the measures that Michelin were recommending would solve the issue. Alonso hinted that some teams ran the pressures really low and Ron Dennis was one of the uh, team bosses that Dieter mentioned earlier who singled out Toyota for running their pressures too low and he said that amplified the problem but Dieter's already told us that that wasn't the case. Jacques Villeneuve at Sauber says the problems were specific to certain teams so it must be related to their setup but he did add that Michelin had clearly brought the wrong tyres 
although Sauber was safe and there might just be some more tyre degradation than usual. Williams said they didn't have any problems at this point, but Mark Webber was a man who was concerned because he recalled the problems Mercedes had at Le Mans in 1999 when their cars were taking off in practice and qualifying. Webber didn't want Mercedes to start that race, but as a young driver back then, his voice wasn't heard and Mercedes suffered the same fate in the race itself. So Mark, we had a qualifying session. We had a grid formed uh, for, for Sunday, but when you're hearing all these mixed responses from the drivers and the teams on Saturday night, were you at all confident at this point that we still might get a race? I ultimately thought the solution would be found and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a tire solution. You know, I think it was apparent by this time that it would have to be a circuit solution. Um, and I, yeah, I, I thought we're probably going to go down that route. Um, by, I think, late Saturday, it was pretty um, pretty clearly established that the, 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 the Michelin tyres um, were showing signs of the same imminent failure that the, the Toyos, Toyotas had suffered on on most of the cars, on most of the Michelin runners. Um, and yet yeah, Dita was talking earlier on about the, the, the cambers, and I think, I think it's true at that time that Toyota typically didn't run very much camber on their rear wheels and I think maybe trying to keep control of the temperatures on the inner shoulder and that was a particular problem at um, Indy because you're going through uh, turn 13 which as Dita said is putting a, a lot of load on, on the outer shoulder um, but you then had a, a 16, 17 second run at over 200 miles an hour down the following straight so if you had um, an inner shoulder temperature problem, you were r risking having a tire failure at 200 miles an hour down at the end of the straight. So that that was a, a problem of the, potentially all the, the, the Michelin teams were looking at. It was that it didn't leave you a, 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 a window of, of a margin because if you set it up with um, to protect the tire down the straight, it increased the loads through turn 13. And if you reduce the load through turn 13, you increase the, the chances of a problem at the end of the straight. So it was already apparent that there was very little um, window for a tyre solution as such. And so, yeah, we were now thinking there probably would be a race, but um, even though we were hearing that very real possibility that there wouldn't be. Yeah, and as Mark said there, Michelin's position by Saturday night was that it couldn't give its teams total assurance that the tyres could be used safely in the race unless the speed through the final corner could be reduced. By Saturday night, plenty of suggestions are being thrown around. We already know that the new tyre batch had been put forward as an option, although race director Charlie Whiting was not in favour of this. He told the teams it would be a clear breach of the regulations and then there would be disagreements over what would be a suitable penalty. In a letter he sent to Michelin on Sunday morning, he said, we believe the penalty would not be exclusion but would have to be heavy enough to ensure that no team was tempted to use qualifying tyres in the future. What else was on the table? There was a suggestion that Michelin could inform their teams of a speed limit at the final corner, although Whiting added that the teams would have to ensure their cars didn't obstruct the Bridgestone runners who were at full speed, so that one was perhaps never practical. There was also talk of the Michelin runners using the pit lane on every single lap to avoid putting the tyres through the stresses of the final corner. Another idea was that the drivers could keep coming in to change the left rear tyre. As we mentioned earlier, tyre changes weren't allowed in 2005, but exceptions were allowed on safety grounds, and Whiting said on Sunday morning there would be no penalty for this. However, there would be a penalty if the multiple changes the teams were making meant that a driver 
exceeded its tyre allocation for the weekend, which almost certainly would have been the case. The final suggestion, which we've already mentioned briefly, and it rumbled on throughout Sunday, was for a chicane to be installed between the final two corners to reduce the speed sufficiently on the banking. But from the moment that was suggested, Whiting told Michelin that is out of the question. He added, To change the course in order to help some of the teams with a performance problem caused by their failure to bring suitable equipment to the race would be a breach of the rules and grossly unfair to those teams which have come to Indianapolis with the correct tyres. So Dieter, we had a lot of different ideas on the table come Saturday night. Did you fully support any of those that we mentioned there? Well, um, in theory, as, as I said, we, we tried to, in, in somehow, to find a way to, to do a race. And uh, you said it as well. I mean, there were a few points already which were really not... Not, not not possible or would not have helped the problems like the like the Barcelona tires um, as well a speed uh, limit we didn't really support that for, for several reasons uh, because I mean only for the Michelin runners a speed limit uh, I think uh, on one hand it would have been very difficult to police that and on the other hand as well there, there was an element uh, of uh, of a safety risk uh, because the drivers as well after the race um, at one stage made a, made a statement on that that uh, this would have been unsafe because anyway you would have been driving on the racing line and you would have uh, the, the Bridgestone runners coming at uh, at max speed so I think those weren't really uh, serious options as well running through the pit lane I mean uh, you, you wouldn't have had the race either so I think the, the only one with, with potentially could have given us the chance to have a, a fair uh, race um, for everybody, would have been putting up a chicane, but there was obviously FIA and the Bridgestone runners uh, wanting to have a word on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, just a bit. Mark, what did you think from the outside? Did you like the sound of any of the ideas being put forward? Yeah, the chicane was the obvious one. Um, and even even the Bridgestone runners' um, objections to that, uh, you, you could have um, covered. Um, you, you, there was uh, talk of... Uh, the Michelin runners would have to um, have a, a stop-go penalty, that you know, in, in order that the the Bridgestone runners retained an advantage, um, which was the advantage was only fair because Bridgestone had brought the correct tyres and Michelin hadn't, so that was only fair that there should be a, an advantage. It, it, the, the argument that the chicane putting in the chicane um, would have negated the Bridgestone advantage, so. To counter that, uh, it was suggested. Well, okay, every Michelin runner has a stop-go penalty, and, and it was there was a solution there, if, but there wasn't a will there um, from the governing body. Yeah, and as Sunday morning carried on, the chicane was the talk of the paddock. Bernie Eccleston got all of the teams except Ferrari to agree to the chicane, and then it was his job to take that proposal to Ferrari and get them to agree to it. But Ferrari's position, which we covered in detail in our Ferrari 2005 episode back in Series 1, was that it was nothing to do with them and it was up to the FIA to decide. Michelin then made a public plea for a chicane to be put in, saying it cannot guarantee the safety of the drivers without it. Less than an hour before the race, teams were still pushing for a chicane. Sam Michael of Williams said it's down to Ferrari and he said no other teams would head to the grid when the pit lane opened half an hour before the start if there was not a chicane. Minardi boss Paul Stoddart, whose Minnow team were on Bridgestone tyres, showed solidarity with the Michelin teams, as we mentioned earlier, and at this point, so did Jordan. 
Stoddart said to ITV before the race, this is the time for Formula One to come together as a sport and leave politics behind. We want to see a race here, not a political disaster. For that to be able to happen, there needs to be a chicane. On the McLaren pit wall, Martin Whitmarsh told ITV, we accept we should be penalised. We accept we should be we should put Ferrari on the front row with Jordan and Minardi after them. But we're not going out without a chicane on that corner. And I don't believe one can be built in 20 minutes. So unless something dramatic happens, there won't be a race. Interestingly, he adds, this is Formula One. Things get taken to the wire and we'll see what happens in the next half an hour. Mark, this was a recurring theme in the coverage just ahead of the race at the time. Do you think that attitude of this is F1, we always push it to the last second, meant that some people assumed this would work itself out right at the final moment? Well, there was definitely that that undercurrent was definitely there. As I said before, there was this was um, uh, being played out against a political backdrop, a much bigger political picture than than just the one that the, was triggered by the tyre issue. Um, so yes, there was a certain amount of um, uh, belief that there were there was some posturing going on, but the, 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 that that didn't disguise the fact that there was a very very real problem that needed a solution. And uh, the the you know the, as the the clock ticked down, it became ever more um, apparent that that solution wasn't going to be um, agreed to. And just before Mark Webber got into his car in the garage, he said, uh, with tyres, it's okay if we get a warning and the chance to feel something happening, but when they just go quickly, it's very dangerous for the driver. It's the worst thing that can fail along with brakes. So Dieter, in our timeline of the weekend, we're just a few minutes away now from the pit lane opening. What do you remember was going on at this time? And by this point, did you think there was any chance of us getting a race? Um... The thoughts were still still the same in, in our view. Uh, we couldn't see a progress how the race could could potentially happen. So um, by the time we then went out, uh, it was clear for us at least that um, we would be pulling in after the, the the formation lap. Yeah, the pit lane opens with half an hour to go before the start. And interestingly, just as McLaren reserve driver Pedro De La Rosa is on TV saying that nine teams have agreed not to go out, the yellow Jordans flash through the back of the shot and a visibly surprised Pedro says, OK, eight teams then. And we'll come back to the Jordan and Minardi story in a moment. 20 minutes before the start, the Michelin teams finally leave the garages and head to the grid. And there's loud cheers from the fans in the grandstands. However, Christian Horner said at this point, Michelin will not allow us to race this tyre, so unless something changes, we will not race. We will go to the grid, but we will come in on the formation lap. Bernie Eccleston tells Martin Brundle on the grid, it's been decided not to put a chicane there, so that's it. You can't tell people to do something when the tyre company has said you can't race on those tyres. The drama on the grid continued, though, and not all of it was captured on TV, but one man who caught one of the more interesting exchanges on the grid was McLaren mechanic and friend of the show, Mark Priestley, who overheard Kimi Raikkonen and Ron Dennis having a heated disagreement. So let's quickly find out what Mark heard on the grid. 
Well, it's been a really interesting weekend, but really kind of crazy and strange weekend from our perspective, because all the way through, we didn't really know what was going to happen. Some of the other teams seemed to have a little bit more information than we did, and whether that was just a perception of ours, I don't know. But even to the point where we got to race day on Sunday, Sunday morning, we prepared the cars as if they were going to race, whereas other teams seemed to be a little bit more hesitant or seemed to be a little bit more confident that things were going to be very abnormal by the time the afternoon came around. But for us at McLaren, Ron Dennis had constantly said, let's get things going as normal. We're doing everything we can behind the scenes to make this race happen. So that's what we did as mechanics. We prepared everything. We took the car to the grid. One of my roles during that period was uh, I was part of the front end uh, crew on Kimmy's car. And one of my roles was to kind of get Kimmy strapped into the car to repair his belts, make sure everything was right for when he got back in after his, his toilet break. And, uh, and I remember getting to that point, still 100% convinced that we were about to go and do the, the US Grand Prix. I got Kimmy into the car, I removed the steering wheel, I, I helped him in, held his belts apart while he got in. He climbed in as normal, didn't really say much, which was also fairly normal for Kimmy. And, uh, and I remember sort of strapping him in. At that point, I kind of leaned right over into the cockpit to do up his belts. And at that point, I remember this presence over my right shoulder. And uh, very quickly, I realized that somebody was standing very close to me, much more close than normal. And it was Ron Dennis. So the team boss. So that puts me under a little bit of uh, suspicion and, and pressure, because when the team boss is standing over your shoulder doing anything, it makes you slightly nervous. But uh, Ron came in and I overheard what was a very strange conversation, one I'll never forget, because Ron came along and he said to Kimmy, he knelt down next to the car, he leant in, he said to Kimmy, Kimmy, at the end of this formation lap, we're going to ask you to pull into the pit lane and retire the car. And I thought, wow, okay, that's the first I've heard that we may not actually be racing here. Kimmy, though, who I was, you know, centimetres away from his face, still doing his belts up, Kimmy said, uh, no, this is ridiculous. We're here to race, so let's just fucking race. And I remember chuckling away to myself at that point. And Ron Dennis then, because nobody says that to Ron, so Ron Dennis turned around and said, Kimmy, I'm sorry, but everybody else, all of your main competitors are going to do the same. We need you to pull in. There's a lot of work gone into this behind the scenes. I'm afraid this is the result. You need to pull into the pit lane at the end of the formation lap. And I remember Kimmy just sitting there shaking his head. And I'm sitting there very uncomfortable thinking, what the hell is going on here? Kimmy's just shaking his head, didn't say anything. Ron Dennis then said, Kimmy, I'm speaking now as your boss. This is an order. You will pull in at the end of the formation lap. And I remember just Kimmy still shaking his head going, this is a fucking joke. And that was it. He pulled his visor down. I carried on doing his belts up and Ron stormed off in the biggest rage I have ever seen. <laughs> I strapped Kimmy in. I put the wheel onto his car. I sent him off, having not really said anything more to him because I didn't know what to say. And still at that point, I had no idea what Kimmy was going to do. He went off for the formation lap along with everybody else. I made my way back to the garage in the pit lane and still at the point where the lead cars began to filter into the pit lane, as predicted, all of the Michelin runners, of course, I still had no idea if Kimmy was just going to ignore the instructions and go on and do the race by himself. I certainly would not have put it past him. <laughs> anyway, as it turned out, he did filter into the pit lane. He duly came up along to the garage. I called him in. At that point, we, we pull him up outside the garage and wheel the car back. And the radio in my ear was going crazy because Dave Ryan, the team manager, was saying, right, guys, I want you to keep the drivers inside the car because still at this point, there's a chance that there's talks going on. We may still enter the race. And I had to come back on the radio and say, Dave, 
I'm afraid Kimmy's, Kimmy's already gone. <laughs> Before the car had even really ground to a halt, his belts were undone, the wheel was off, and he was off into the garage, and I didn't see him again. <laughs> so it was a sort of hilarious moment in some ways. It was a crazy day for us because I've never experienced anything like it. We were packing the garage up during the race, this crazy race of just six Bridgestone runners, of course. And uh, as I say, Kimmy was long gone and almost certainly on a flight out of there before we'd even finished packing up the garage. So an afternoon I'll never forget. All the cars take off for the formation lap and David Coulthard's radio is played over the TV broadcast. And he says, if it comes down to my choice, I want to race. But Dieter, I assume that by the time the formation lap begins... There's no room for negotiation and, and it's all being decided by this point. Yeah, true. And this was obviously for us the, the point of maximum excitement. Uh, we were on the pole position and uh, for the first time for Toyota, as you mentioned earlier on, we had the clear instruction to pull in after the formation lap. But, but you know how it is. Uh, you know, everybody wants to race. We knew we would respect that call and pull in, but you don't know if you're the car on the pole position is if everybody else is going to follow you. So that was a little bit of uh, suspense for us, but uh, at the end of the day, we all saw that um, people were effectively uh, respecting that um, that agreement. And uh, I think at the end of the day, really, it was a shame, obviously, for the race not happening, in particular for the, for the spectators, really a nightmare, uh, but the only safe thing we could have potentially done. Yeah, exactly. And Mark, did you... Did you understand that there could have been any hope of us still getting a race by this point? No, it was apparent um, that there was no chance. It was already, um, once there was no chicane there, it was it was obvious that there wasn't going to be a race. Um, and as Dieter said, the only the only way there might have been a race was if, if, if anyone broke ranks. Um, but I, I didn't think that was very likely. It was a similar situation, though, but I understand why Dita was concerned because um, it was a similar situation to um, the Japanese Grand Prix in 1976 with Nicky Lauda and all the drivers had agreed that they would just do a, a formation lap and then and come in at the end of lap one and um, only four drivers did so, Lauda being one of them and um, the, the, the rest just carried on so is that competitive um, you know, when when the moment arrives, sometimes the the competitive adrenaline over overrules any previous agreements. But um, other than that happening, no, I, there was there was no chance of a race uh, with the Michelin runners. We all know what happens next. All fourteen Michelin cars pull into the pit lane, leaving the Ferraris, Jordans, and Minardis to contest a six-car race. Schumacher and Barrichello did have a bit of a battle in the Ferraris, helped by Schumacher's first stop being long, while his left rear tire was checked out. He then puts in a charge before his second stop and exits the pits alongside Barrichello, who had to take to the grass at the first corner. After that nervy moment, Ferrari called the race off and Schumacher takes the team's only win of the year. Dieter, what were you doing while the race was going on? Did you did you watch any of it or did you have better things to do with your time? Um, honestly, I didn't follow the race uh, too much um because uh, we started feeling as well the atmosphere on the grandstands. Uh, the fans were rightly so very, very upset. Um, and um, yeah, basically we were, we were starting to do our things and, and, and uh, packing up. Now we won't get into Ferrari's weekend too much here because as I mentioned earlier, we've covered that side of things with a decent chunk of a previous episode. But while we have Dieter here um, and before we let him go, let's look at the role Ferrari had in the discussions 
about finding a solution. In that previous episode, we looked at Ross Braun's comments from his book, where he said Ferrari stood back that weekend and let it happen. He said it was Max Mosley fighting back against the suggestion of a chicane, but Ferrari didn't encourage a solution that would have been to our disadvantage. At the time, Ferrari team boss Jean Todt said Ferrari would not have agreed to a chicane, but he was never asked about it during the weekend anyway. He added that it would have been ridiculous to put one in half an hour before the race with no chance to try it out, and also that there was no reason for Ferrari to compromise as they would have set their cars up differently if they knew they were racing on a layout with a chicane. He added that Ferrari wouldn't have competed if this had become a non-championship race, but he would have been happy for the Michelin teams to keep changing tyres, to use the pit lane every lap, or just to go slowly through the final corner. Dieter, what do you recall of Ferrari's involvement that weekend? Did they did they stay on the outside, as Braun and Tot suggested, or do you think they were more actively involved? Yeah, I'm afraid that's much more, uh, unfortunately, the question for, for a team principal, because uh, I was involved uh, in the technical discussion uh, with exclusively with, with Michelin. So from what I remember at, at the time, uh, I was never involved in, in a discussion where actually Ferrari participated, everything within the Michelin teams. And I think then the, the, the other discussion that you described probably were held uh, exclusively with, with the team principals. Okay, and then just lastly, because um, I'm conscious that we don't take up too much of your time, but we've enjoyed having you here. With the suggestion like the chicane, one of the uh, FIA arguments was that they couldn't change the circuit at the last minute and then risk having an accident on a layout that wasn't properly homologated. Did the Michelin teams understand that that made that impossible or do you think there was still a way it could have been done? No, I think um, there was some some understanding for for that situation because uh, effectively uh, the argument that we that came up was that we would have run on a non-homologated circuit and uh, i think with the safety standards that we put up at the, at this stage that wasn't really uh, uh, really an alternative because uh, you you compensate uh, a safety risk by putting up another so that wouldn't have been the right option at the end of the day i think and just lastly then uh, before we let you go when you look back on this what are your what are your final thoughts about the whole unfortunate incident was there any way out of this or was it just something that the f1 had no choice but to have the outcome that we had in the end of the six car race I think if we take the complete picture, probably uh, it couldn't have been dealt with in another way uh, because there were some uh, investigations afterwards, uh, obviously, and you know there was a hearing with the World Council and, and so on, and uh, a different analysis has, had been done. And one part of it as well, uh, a question basically to, to all the teams, whether we uh, made a mistake in selecting the the tires for uh, the Indianapolis race and uh, even with the analysis post race uh, we couldn't come to the conclusion that uh, in the process there was was a mistake and we should have done differently and should have chosen uh, another tire uh, these were just um, the circumstances at this particular track with a banking uh, which you couldn't really find anywhere else in the, exactly the same way um, as well with a, with a long straight line after the corner that Mark already mentioned earlier on. Uh, so we simply couldn't get in the in a 
reasonable condition to to simulate what uh, what would uh, wait for us in, in in Indianapolis. So I think yes, it is it is a shame, and obviously never, nobody wanted it to happen that way. But at the end of the day, probably uh, the only possible outcome. Yeah, well, uh, it was a really unfortunate weekend for F1. But thank you so much, Dieter, for finding the time to to revisit it with us and tell us some of the stories that were going on on, on the inside. It's been a fascinating conversation. Very welcome. It's my pleasure. Brilliant stuff there from Dieter Gass and we're very appreciative here at Bring Back V10s that he was able to come along and give us some an inside look at what was going on through a difficult weekend. And And I must say that uh, I've spoken to someone else quite senior at Toyota recently and they were a bit more open, shall we say, about just how little fuel was in Trulli's car. Um, one of the rumours, one of the rumours I'd heard was they weren't even sure he'd make it round to the form- end of the formation lap to to get into the pit lane. But Mark, you had the unfortunate task of still having to cover this race and report on it with just six cars uh, pounding round. What did you make of it while it was, while it was going on? And, and how did you feel thinking this is, well, presumably thinking this is ridiculous. I've somehow got to write my normal race report amongst all this. Well, it was a quite a farcical race, so I didn't worry too much about it. It wasn't, wasn't very difficult to cover six cars to understand what was happening. So there wasn't a lot of uh, um, deep analysis required of the race itself. So, you know, the report ended up being set in the backdrop of just how it had come to this and the, the wider issues. Um, but in terms of the race, yeah, Ferrari tried to make it a little bit more exciting by um, delaying Michael at his first stop uh, under the pretense of checking that his tyres were okay, which delayed him by seven seconds or so, which meant that he had to fight his way back ahead of Rubens. And uh, Rubens was all for uh, trying to take the lead off him as, as Michael rejoined. And um, they they almost they almost touched. And at that point, it was briefly looking like Tiago Monteiro was going to win the race. But uh, yeah, that was about as much excitement as there was in the race itself. The, 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 the main the story, of course, was the, 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 the story around the race rather than the race itself. Yeah, I think Montero winning could have been about the only thing to make this weekend and the race more ridiculous. Now, we have briefly mentioned Max Mosley a couple of times at this point, but of course, he was one of the key men involved while all of this was going on, even if he wasn't actually at the race. Mosley supported Whiting's stance on not having the chicane, and Max says that he flat out refused to consider it, partly for sporting fairness to the teams that had the correct tyres, but also because a last-minute change like this, in Max's words, would leave the FIA exposed if there were an accident because the governing body wouldn't have followed its own safety procedures. Max understands that work did start on a chicane, and uh, this was being done by the circuit organisers under the instruction of Bernie Eccleston, but when Charlie Whiting found out about that, he got it stopped immediately. Mark, some teams made references to some of the hastily put-together chicanes we saw in 1994, but none of those were, of course, concocted on race morning. Was the was it ultimately the right call by the FIA that they could never sanction a chicane being added this soon, just before the race? I don't believe it was. I believe that was just Max polemics to justify the move he was intent on playing in the bigger game, using this unfortunate miscalculation with the tyres to meet his political agenda in his fight with the GPWC, which was the manufacturer alliance, and the teams. He was trying to push through the engine freeze and reduce the power of the manufacturers, and the manufacturers had banded together and were threatening to set up on their own, taking the customer teams with them. 
there were only three teams not on side with that, and by coincidence, and it really was coincidence, they, they, they were the three Bridgestone teams, Ferrari, Jordan, and Minardi. That was the backdrop. The Michelin problems had delivered to Max an irresistible opportunity to not only punish the Renegade teams, but to show them that he was absolutely willing to stage Grand Prix with just three teams, thereby destroying the GBWC team's confidence that without them, F1 couldn't exist. Max was shown, showing them that it could. It was irresistible, that opportunity, I, I believe, to him, and he should have resisted because of the fans. So that was the political backdrop. As for the actual problem of hosting a race, there were solutions there. And I was told at the time by somebody who would know that to tweak the insurance for an emergency change of circuit layout would have been a three-minute phone call. Anything else was just self-imposed restrictions. You're just pretending you couldn't do it to, to stand behind for obfuscation. Whether there was a right or a wrong side in the FIA GBWC fight isn't relevant. The point is, it was indefensible to make the fans who travelled there in good faith, who paid to watch the show, be the victims in this. For them, F1 is one entity. They'd paid this entity money, made their weekend plans around it. If that entity couldn't get itself into shape enough to stage the promised event with a full grid of teams and drivers, then shame on that entity. That There was only one party here preventing a solution, and it wasn't the teams. For that party to them blame the teams was pure power play and politics and the bigger picture. That flashpoint, the core technical issue that had caused the problem, was solvable and it was willfully prevented. Let's go back to the other two teams who raced that day, of course, Jordan and Minardi, because even by Sunday morning, they were both on the same side as the Michelin runners. So it was effectively a group of nine against the FIA in the run up to the race. But I mentioned earlier that moment where the Jordans leave their garage when the pit lane opened and it came as a surprise, well, to everyone watching and certainly to poor Pedro De La Rosa, who was on TV at the time. But nobody was more surprised than Minardi boss Paul Stoddart. Stoddart declared on live TV before the race that nine of the 10 teams will only go out of the pit lane if there's a chicane. On TV again during the race, he was asked what happened and he said, the reason my cars are out there is simple. It's because one of those teams decided not to honour their commitment and it's the only team we're racing in the championship. While the Jordan cars continue to circulate, we have no choice. Jordan sporting director Adrian Burgess said that the decision came from his boss, for the cars to race and that boss at the time of course was Colin Collars. Collars told ITV the situation is not pleasant but we are not responsible for Michelin and the other teams. They are not stopping races when we have tyre problems that's racing. Stoddart released a statement after the race that was nearly 3,000 words long and to be honest we could have built our whole episode around that because it had so much detail about what was happening and when. But he also mentioned there that he checked with Collars on the grid if Jordan would be racing and was told in no uncertain terms that they would be. And Bridgestone then also said that they wanted Minardi to race. And Stoddart added, I made it clear to Bernie Eccleston and several team principals that if the Jordans either went off or retired, I would withdraw the Minardi cars from the race. Mark, was there any real reason for Jordan to stand by the Michelin teams here and effectively let a podium finish, even in a farcical race, go begging? Well, in the bigger picture, Jordan wasn't against the aims of the GBWC and in principle agreed to join the Michelin teams in making a stand to do, have a solution for the race. Um, but when it came down to it, when it was clear there was no um, solution in, in terms of a chicane or whatever, and with points and money at stake and no technical reason not to take part, as it was on Bridgestones, 
it was easy for Bernie, who was absolutely desperately trying to get some some sort of race on, to convince Colin Collis to start. So supportive in principle in threatening not to race, but not when it came down to it, no. And Jordan's participation, as you say, ensured the Bridgestone shod Minardis too, as they were fighting each other in the Constructors' Championship not to be last. Now, the man who took that podium finish was, of course, Thiago Montero. And while Schumacher and Barrichello looked a little uncomfortable up on the podium, Montero wanted to make the most of the biggest moment of his F1 career. So let's quickly hear his side of the story. We, we, we never really, we never sided with the, the Michelins because... Uh, actually, we were trying to make them come to reason and try to make them understand that we had many issues before with our own tires in many different tracks. There were some tracks where we were struggling to, to do a, a single stint, you know. The only thing is that maybe it was not as dangerous because there was no crashes, but because we always stopped before. And also because we, we always took a, a safer approach than the missions did that time. So we had our shares of issues during previous races but we didn't complain or we didn't boycott anything so that's what we're trying to make them understand guys you, you brought an, a, a tire that is too extreme here there were ways for them to be more careful less aggressive on them but they didn't want to do it so we could not we could not accept that we struggled before and we didn't complain about it and now that they had issues they were they wanted to boycott so we never agreed with their position we tried to come to a compromise but all the compromise they wanted was always to their advantage so <laughs> so it didn't work out so um we were always against their proposals and therefore there was no unanimity therefore they decided to to, to boycott the race but we only realized they were boycotting the race at the start until then even until a few minutes before maybe half an hour, 45 minutes before the, the race, there was the last minute, there was a last meeting between the team principals. And uh, it was still not clear that they were going to do that. So um, it, it was a surprise, a bit of a shock when we realized they were all pulling in the pits. What it, what it was annoying to us was that we knew there were options. Uh, I mean, one of them was sacrificing, sacrificing performance, like lifting off in that corner, not going over a certain speed on that corner. Yeah, we lose performance, but yeah, well, we had also the same problems and we lost performance in other tracks. So we knew there was ways to make it happen. They were just trying to make prove a point and that's what we, we didn't accept and we didn't like at the time. But of course, perform um, <laughs> security and safety comes first. And at the end of the day, if that's the only way they had to make it safe for everybody, fair enough, but still, it was not our responsibility, so uh, we did our thing. I actually have that radio tra transmit when uh, my engineer tells me, okay, nobody knows what's going to happen, so just stay on your spot and your position and, and we'll see. And then when he tells me, okay, this one is pulling in, Montoya is pulling in, Kulda is pulling in, uh, well, whatever, everybody was pulling in and he just told me, you stay on your position, don't gain positions on, on the grid, just stay in your spot and um, take it from there. You know, a lot of things can happen. There are points on the table. That's what, that's, <laughs> that's what we realized and we knew. So uh, just focus and do your, the best you can. And then, you know, when you go to the driver's room just before the podium, I got a huge hug from uh, Michael and Rubens and uh, 
and you know like well you know it's quite a crazy race you know but well done you know at least you're at least you're here and you did well etc etc and it's good for us for the championship so for them it was good points you know so they were happy maybe not as happy as a regular race maybe but they were like celebrate celebrating and suddenly i always remember david warren uh, fom i think from yeah, fom manager at the time comes into the room and says guys take it down now uh, it, it is a very sensitive situation um let's go to the podium obviously but please no celebrations and take it easy blah blah and I'm like, oh shit, okay, well, you know, it was my first time there on the podium, I didn't know exactly what to do. And, and yeah, and they, they went to the podium with a long face. Um, I went a bit serious as well. But then again, once I was there, I, I see all my mechanics down there shouting and celebrating. I'm like, you know, what the hell? I mean, we didn't steal anything from anybody. We, we're here because we deserve to be here because the others pulled out, but that's not our problem. So I started celebrating like it, like it was, like it was not, you know, it was going to be my last podium. Uh, I realized, man, I'm on a Formula One podium with Rubens and Michael, and I have uh, 80 people down there crying. I mean, what the hell? So, uh, yeah, I did celebrate and I enjoyed my my time. Mosley's theory on everything else that went on that day, including all the team meetings that he says in his book were for the benefit of the cameras was that the seven Michelin teams were utterly convinced the FIA would buckle when it came to crunch time. He said of Eccleston and Briatore, Looking back, I think Bernie and Flavio never believed for one moment that we would allow the race to go ahead with only six cars. They were convinced that faced with seven teams who were prepared to stick together, we would have no alternative but to back down. Perhaps if I'd been there, I could have made them understand why that was never going to happen. All they could do was refuse to race or compete in a locally organised non-championship event. I decided the only course for the FIA was to ignore the threats and simply follow the start procedure on schedule. The teams could then do as they pleased. Let's move on to the fallout then, which Dieter hinted at briefly when he was still with us. And we'll do it as quickly as we can, because in the weeks that followed, we just had multiple press statements, leaked letters, uh, personally held Q&As, threats and general bickering in public. Going back and, and reading through all of this, um, normally I really enjoy the research that comes with Bring Back V10s, but that that phase of this uh, episode I found quite tedious, I must say, and I don't miss that part of Formula One. The key facts were that the seven Michelin teams were summoned by the FIA on five counts and were later found guilty of two of them. They were found guilty of failing to ensure they were in possession of suitable tyres for the race, but with strong mitigating circumstances. And they were also found guilty of wrongfully refusing to allow their cars to start a race when they had the right to use the pit lane on each lap. They were found not guilty of refusing to race subject to a speed restriction because there was never a detailed plan for how this could work. Not guilty of combining to make a demonstration for the reason that they had hoped to race until the last minute. And for the same reason, they were found not guilty of failing to inform the stewards of their intention not to start. Mosley delayed any penalty being handed out, though, saying that the intention of the verdict was to indirectly put pressure on Michelin to secure compensation for the guys in the States. He added that if the compensation package was not sorted out by September, then severe penalties would be imposed. But Mark, 
by this point, Michelin had already outlined their plans to offer refunds to ticket holders and then to provide 20,000 free tickets for the 2006 race. So was this all a bit unnecessary from Max? Yeah, the whole thing was unnecessary. It was pure power play. The teams weren't guilty of anything. The FIA was um, court judge and executioner, and it was just it was pure power play. Um, so no, there was there was nothing justified about any of it. Six of the teams immediately stated their intention to appeal the verdict, with Red Bull initially not wanting to take the matter any further. Uh, I think Dietrich Mateschitz said, "There's not going to be any real penalty here, so why keep it going?" But it wasn't long after this that they did join the appeal. And then Red Bull team boss Christian Horner joined Ron Dennis in presenting a dossier of fresh evidence to the FIA Senate on July the 14th, which is roughly a month after the race. The Senate agreed that the teams were contractually bound to follow the instructions of their tyre supplier, meaning that for the same reason the FIA couldn't risk legal action by changing the circuit layout, the teams couldn't take part in the race with Michelin instructing them to the contrary. The Senate recommended that the World Motorsport Council overturn the guilty verdicts, which it duly did a week later. Perhaps the most remarkable moment in all of this, to me anyway, was that it led to Flavio Briatore praising Ron Dennis, which didn't happen very often. Flavio said, I want to say Ron did a great job for everyone because he negotiated with Max, with the teams, and the result was the teams were not guilty. Now the FIA understands it was a Michelin issue, not at all the teams. Ron saw the funny side of that, saying, I think being the catalyst and ambassador is a new experience for me. And he said the outcome was in the interests of Formula One because nobody came out of Indianapolis with anything positive and perpetuating the negatives was clearly not constructive to Formula One. That's a wrong quote, if ever I heard one. Mosley wrote in his book that the new evidence presented by the teams showed that, in his words, technically they had not committed an offence under our rules despite their abortive rebellion. He also said he learned later on that the teams had told their drivers the sight of 14 cars peeling into the pits at the end of the formation lap would make the FIA buckle, delay the start and agree to put the chicane in. Mark, just finally, Max compares this whole saga to the Fisa Foca War of the early 1980s. Do you think it ranks up or perhaps I should say down there with something of that magnitude? I think it was much worse, more, more cynical. Um, you know, even Max's own language of um, teams standing down and um, re rebellion and um, calling bluffs, it, it tells you that his whole agenda wasn't on solving the, 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 the immediate problem. It was in the context of the bigger political battle. The political battle in the Fisa Foca Wars in the 80s, that, that was much the same, but in that instance, the fans weren't made the victims of convenience. It was all happening behind closed doors. But in this case, the fans were almost casually waved away as irrelevant. And they are the very reasons the, the, the sport exists. Ultimately, the only reason there even exists is a governing body. Without the fans, there's no sport. And without the sport, there's nothing for the governing body to be in charge of. So, yeah, for me, it was, it was way worse. And let's just finally pick up on that, that thing he said about the, the teams believing that when they peeled into the pits, the FAA would buckle. Do you think that was a worthwhile gamble from the teams or did they maybe underestimate their enemy at this point? I don't think the teams were doing anything other than what they, they, they could do. They, they, they'd been put into a corner by the, the tyre situation and by the FIA's absolute refusal to have a solution. So they, could, and they, they couldn't race when the tyre company had told them that the tyres weren't safe. 
So I don't think the teams were approaching it as a political battle. I think only Max was doing that. Yeah, and in fairness to Max, he has since said that it was incidents like this that made him think that maybe he'd stayed on for too long as FIA president. But that's enough politics for one day. There you have it. Since Bring Back V10's launched, you've been asking for Indianapolis 2005, and we hope it was worth the wait. Series 2 isn't quite over, though, as once again we'll be finishing off by answering your questions about anything and everything to do with F1 from 1989 to 2005. Once again, we've received so many questions from you, either through social media using the hashtag BringBackV10s, or those of you who have very kindly left us a five-star podcast review that we're going to have to split our finale into two episodes. I can't say I'm too disappointed about that, and Mark will, of course, be back with us for one of those, uh, along with Gary Anderson, as they did last series. And we'll do our best across the two episodes to get through as many of your questions as we can. We have set a date for Series 3. Don't worry, you won't have to wait too long this time, but we'll reveal that at the end of Series 2 once we've covered as many weird and wonderful topics as we can over the next two weeks, all chosen by you. 